welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine an aspect of the Royal Australian Navy's history. The Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales is supported in this series by the Royal Australian Navy, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia, and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Hello, I am Peter Jones, a retired Vice Admiral and now a member of the Naval Studies Group. This is the third and final episode in which we discuss the deeds of an elite part of the Royal Australian Navy, namely its clearance divers. To discuss the clearance divers, I'm joined by Vice Admiral Russ Crane, a former Chief of Navy, and having the distinction of being the first former sailor to be Chief of Navy and the first clearance diver to do so. And Commodore Heck Donoghue, who was a retired clearance diver and underwater warfare specialist who co-authored United and Undaunted, The First 100 Years, a history of diving in the Royal Australian Navy from 1911 to 2011, and most recently, Australian minesweepers at war. And finally, Commander Peter Tedman, a very experienced clearance diver and recipient of the Distinguished Service Medal. He served in many operations, including Iraq in the Arabian Gulf and East Timor. Thank you for joining me. First off, Heck Donoghue, what was the state of the diving capabilities of the Royal Australian Navy at the end of the Vietnam War? Yes, I'll cover this under four sections. The organisation changes to the operational teams, the equipment changes, the role of the ship's divers and, and the important work of the School of Underwater Medicine. The rationalisation of the RN's operational diving teams commenced just before participation in the Vietnam War. The mobile clearance diving team moved to join the Mine Countermeasure Squadron at HMAS Waterhen in 1965 and from 1966 was known as Clearance Diving Team 1. The Port Diving Party and the Diving Development Unit were combined to form CDT 2 and remained with the diving school at Rushcutter, moving to HMAS Penguin in 1968. 1974 saw a doubling of CDT-1's complement to 30 and put in place the ability to operate in separate units to manage the increasing demands on expertise and the wider range of tasks being undertaken. Their general pattern of work continued, commencing with a workup as a team formed. CDT-4 was established as a full operational unit at HMAS Stirling in Western Australia in 1978 and has always been at the forefront of operational activity. From 1980 to 1995, it provided personnel to the counter-terror squadron of the Special Air Service Regiment. In 94, CDD2 was absorbed into Team 1, and at this time, both Team 1 and Team 4 complement had risen to around 100 personnel. In December 01, Teams 1 and 4 were commissioned and redesignated Oz CD 1 and 4 respectively. Their officers in charge were now commanding officers of fully commissioned units of the RAN. Both teams had a headquarters element and three operational element elements, as well as providing clearance divers to fill billets in RAN ships deploying. The teams were restructured in 2012 into five force elements to best suit ADF mission requirements. They now have the following elements of maritime tactical operations, mine countermeasures, underwater damage repair, task group explosive ordnance disposal, 
Maritime Counterterrorism Explosives Ordnance Disposal. And the team is now versatile and multidimensional, but also a strategic element of the ADF. Diving equipment was progressively updated over the years with the Draeger FGT-1A mixed gas breathing apparatus artist introduced in 1970 to replace the British clearance diving breathing apparatus used by the first CD course in 1955. In the early 80s, the Draeger La 5000 oxygen breathing apparatus replaced the oxygen version of the old British equipment and the mixed gas breathing apparatus was updated in 2012 by the stealth clearance diving apparatus produced by a company called Divex, and the equipment had entered service in the Royal Navy some four years earlier. Compressed air diving equipment had been progressively updated since the late 80s with more modern and capable equipment. Self-contained breathing apparatus remains similar but more modern. The surface supply breathing apparatus has evolved considerably since its introduction in the 50s with the current equipment incorporating hard wire communications and closed circuit television with both fully enclosed and soft helmets. Over the years since Vietnam, ships divers have continued to provide the routine diving support needed on board naval ships, both in Australian waters and more importantly, when deployed overseas. Since commencing ships diver training in 1957, Approximately 100 divers have been trained each year with about 10 courses. A high wastage rate brought on by posting cycles when the difficulty of retaining your diving qualification requires maintaining a high level of training, but also provides valuable experience to the trainers. By the early 1970s, the School of Underwater Medicine was well established and the safety record of the RAN's diving community has benefited from their research work and training. One of the 14 diving accidents resulting in deaths to the, in the RN's diving history, the last one was 1983, which is testament to the positive impact of the school. The operational teams benefited from an underwater medicine qualified sailor attached to the teams in 1971, and the school has contributed to submarine escape training and, and the medical aspects of the RN's submarine escape and rescue systems. Okay, thanks, Heck. Um, so, Russ Crane, in the years after the Vietnam War, what was the operational tempo of the clearance diving teams and what sort of things did they do? Well, um, you know, I think it's important to say up front that the, the impact of the work that the CDT-3 did in Vietnam was foundational in terms of developing the capability for the clearance divers um, in the RAN. Um, it laid, as I said, a foundation for the strategic level of flexibility and professionalism that clearance divers uh, bring to the RAN and on which we needed to continue to build. So uh, their flexibility was really, really important. In the couple of decades following Vietnam, um, I, I think the, the work of the CDTs, or more specifically the CD community in general, um, was extremely busy with a myriad of tasks um, relating essentially to disposal of World War II ordnance uh, around Australia in and out northern approaches, such as in Papua New Guinea, as well as perhaps um, more generally in the Southwest Pacific, 
and of course in a range of disaster response uh, areas. Now I'll just touch on a few of those from the two aspects of if you like domestic and national tasking and then I'll perhaps deal with uh, some of the regional tasking. Um, we were kept extremely busy probably really because of our own at our own initiative uh, after the Second World War. Um, the approach to um, dealing with ammunition was often to take that ammunition offshore and dump it in the sea, normally in deep water. Um, on occasion, I think they fell short of the deep water target um, and a lot of dumping was done in some what we would now call relatively shallow water and of course that has been a problem for us over the decades in trying to deal with these ammunition dumps that have been developed. Um, specifically, uh, there were some big jobs done around uh, Port Lincoln. Uh, Moreton Bay uh, was another area of constant attention that the CDTs were often involved in, in cleaning up some of these ordnance uh, dumps. Another particular area, you'd be aware that there was uh, a mining campaign around Australia during the Second World War, largely uh, defensive mining by ourselves and some offensive mining by our opponents. Um, and quite often we were called to deal with mines that had been um, washed up or had been uh, sunk and then embedded themselves in coral reefs, particularly on the barrier reef. Um, so those sorts of taskings were reasonably common and in fact remain uh, relatively common even today, uh, dealing with some of those uh, that unexploded ordnance left over from World War II. You'd probably be aware of the quite uh, infamous uh, German buoyant mine that floated up onto the beach at Surface Paradise in 1966. That contained 300 kilograms of explosives fill and was an extremely dangerous um, piece of ordnance and it was the, the team from CDT2 uh, called up in 1966 to deal with it. So that's an ongoing task and had been an ongoing task uh, following the Vietnam War. Notable disaster response issues such as things like the Tasman Bridge collapse when uh, MV um, Illawarra uh, hit, or Lake Illawarra it was called, hit the bridge and subsequently sank. Now seven members of the crew of that ship perished uh, and there were also five people who perished as a result of falling off the bridge in their vehicles at the time. Um, again, uh, responding to that was an important part of the work of the clearance diving uh, teams uh, in Australia. A range of aircraft and ship salvage and recovery operations, uh, seeking recovery in the Shoalhaven Bight. Um, we had an F-111 recovery uh, in Haraki Gulf in New Zealand, not necessarily Australia, but close enough. Um, F the RAAF Boeing 707 recovery in 1991, and of course, uh, a recovery of HMAS Arrow as a result of uh, Cyclone Tracy in 1974. So they're just examples of a myriad of tasks that the clearance diving teams needed to be prepared for um, during those that particular time in the 70s and the 80s and ongoing as well. Regionally, um, most of the effort um, originating about around about the mid-60s, 1967, uh, was focused on Papua New Guinea. Uh, as you'd be aware, uh, there was a great deal of um, leftover ordnance in Papua New Guinea, particularly centred around Manus Island um, and Rabaul. First deployment of our clearance divers uh, was in 1967. 
And between 1967 and 1979, uh, there were almost constant tasks from our CDTs into the Papua New Guinea area to deal with unexploded ordnance, both on land and in water, until we passed that task over to the PNGDF EOD unit in uh, 1979. Particular issue, 19, around 1975 was Bootless Inlet. Um, there were a number of defensive minefields laid for anti-invasion minefields laid in that area around Bootless Inlet approaching, Papua, approaching uh, Port Moresby. Um, we needed to, there was an ongoing task to clean that area up. Much of the, many of the mines that were subsequently swept after the war remained embedded in uh, the area. So that was an ongoing task. And of course, our, our mine hunters and mine sweepers, Ibis, Snipe and Curlew, plus CDT1, were involved in that um, regularly. In the southwest Pacific, Numea was a centre point. Uh, lots of work needed to be done around Numea to clean up mines laid during World War II. And more specifically, or more generally perhaps, around the Solomon Islands and Kiribati. Now, that led ultimately to the establishment of an operation called Operation uh, Render Safe, which we established in 2009, to put in place an ongoing tasking effort to assist the nations of the South Pacific in helping them um, make safe those areas that, where their populations were exposed to unexploded ordnance. Okay, thanks, uh, thanks Russ. Um, so, Peter Tedman, we've briefly talked about um, the en seemingly endless task of destroying World War II ordnance in waters around Australia and the Southwest Pacific. We did that a little bit in the previous episode in the period leading up to the Vietnam War, and Russ has just talked about it then. But can, can you just explain what, what exactly is involved in conducting this work? Peter, I, uh, I guess I can give you the able seaman clearance divers version of, uh, of what it entailed. Yeah, that'd be uh, good. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, the late 70s and early 80s was particularly busy, both from a, from a diving uh, point of view, but also we seem to have lots of ordnance found during that period. Uh, I joined Clearance Diving Team 1 in 1977 and remembered we always seemed to be either packing the truck for a local call out or heading out to Richmond Air Base for, for something a bit further afield. Uh, unfortunately, no one had camera phones in those days, so uh, the reports were often pretty vague. Uh, one that I deployed on in 78 was a, from a fisherman uh, who reported seeing an object that he described as, as being uh, large, round, and black with horns, so it sort of uh, it sort of it sort of met the criteria. Um, we were pretty lucky that he that he gave us a, a good description of where he'd seen it, and it was a, it was in a, a creek north of Cairns near uh, Cape Tribulation. Um, it was it was my first jaw, uh, job uh, in the far north, and the first time I'd ever seen a saltwater crocodile. I, I tell you, I'd take a shark any day. Uh, we actually didn't have to do very much diving, which was fairly fortunate. Uh, most of the time was spent in the boat surveying the creeks, looking for this, this piece of ordnance or crawling around in the mangroves. Um, fortunately, one of our teams was, a, was an ex-gunnery sailor, so he, he got to carry the SLR uh, just in case one of the crocodiles decided to, to have a go. Um, 
It took us about four or five days to actually find the mine. It, it ended up being a, uh, a World War II buoyant mine, pretty much as uh, as Russ described, as like the one on uh, on the beach of the Gold Coast, several hundred kilograms of explosive ordnance. Our uh, our chief petty officer, you know, realizing how much damage this thing would do if we if we high ordered it, if we actually detonated it, he. Uh, he, he used some uh, small linear charges, so some small explosive ordnance charges to crack open the case. And then uh, he used uh, some, some uh, uh, phosphor grenades that we had to burn the explosive contents. That was, that was pretty, pretty impressive. Um, one of the team's never-ending tasks, which, which Russ, Russ has already uh, spoken about, uh, which we still have today, is the clearance of ordnance um, from our southwest Pacific neighbours. In the 70s and 80s, Team 1 would deploy an explosive ordnance disposal detachment to New Guinea uh, for three months periods each year. Um, I remember that every group that came back would always report that they'd only scratched the surface. Uh, of course, much of the ordnance that we that we found in that era and, and we still find today is, uh, is our own. Um, as Russ said, at the end of the war, uh, there was a there was plans to dump it in deep water, but but often it wasn't dumped in deep water. So we'd have uh, uh, trawlermen uh, picking something up that was that was too heavy to then throw back in the water, as we did once at Southport, um, and uh, and occasionally, like in New Guinea, uh, they dig a big hole and and just push the ordnance in. So um, I think it'll it'll be whenever we put in a new road, it'll be a uh, in some areas it'll be an ongoing challenge. Thanks very much, uh, Peter. Um, Russ, in a similar vein, another task was ensuring some of the World War II wrecks were, were safe. And I understand you led a team uh, diving on a Japanese submarine in Darwin Harbour. What happened? Yeah, um, Peter, that was um, during my time. It was in uh, November 1984. Um, during my time as the commanding officer of HMAS Curlew, one of our, our mine hunters, um, There'd been some concerns raised uh, about mines being present on the hull uh, of a Japanese uh, KRS-type mine-laying submarine, the I-124. Um, it had been sunk, but this particular submarine had been sunk in 1942 off Darwin. Um, it's about 50 kilometres um, off Darwin Harbour. Uh, it had been sunk by the corvette HMAS Bellarine assisted by Katoomba and Lithgow, and uh, a number of uh, US Navy seaplanes as well. Um, there had been some local divers who'd uh, reported, and, and over a period of time, others had reported that there was ordnance associated with the wreck. Uh, we were in Sydney at the time, and I was given the tasking of uh, getting up there with the ship and locating the submarine and basically doing a survey to establish whether we had an ordnance problem on the wreck. So we, uh, we arrived, uh, I remember it quite well, late in the evening. Uh, the sonar, the 193 sonar in the mine hunters is, is quite good for finding mines, but in finding a submarine it was very, very easy because um, it boomed in on the sonar screen uh, when we got to the right position. So I put... Um, we then put a diver out onto uh, the position of the submarine so that we had it uh, marked. I remember uh, that uh, when the diver got in the water to go and confirm the submarine and tie off a small marker buoy, uh, 
um, he kept going up and down. Uh, he, he'd go down perhaps 20 metres and then service and then go down a few more. And I thought he had a problem with his ears. That's a common issue with divers. Sometimes you have a problem with your ears and you need to ascend and descend a few times to, um, to, to sort it out. Uh, when I spoke to him after the dive, I asked him, did you have a problem with his ears? And he said, no, boss, um, there's some of the biggest sharks you've ever seen that are guarding that reg, and I wasn't sure whether I was going to continue or not. In the end, he did, and he tied off on the wreck. And we then spent, uh, I think it was about a week, doing some surveys. It was in about 45 to 50 metres of water. So um, the dive window was quite limited because there were quite strong currents running through the area, reversing currents. So we only had a couple of hours every 12 hours to actually do the survey dives. Um, we did those dives on mixed, uh, mixed gas and air. Um, and the submarine itself is sitting quite proud of, of the bottom, but I think it's because of the effect of the current has kept the hull reasonably clear of the seabed. So we had pretty good visibility of the hull itself when we were diving. Um, there was no evidence of, of mines. Uh, typically, these, this particular type of submarine would carry mines in saddles on the external, on the deck. Um, certainly no evidence of mines being uh, on the deck. Torpedo tubes were closed, so um, it was difficult. And I'd had some pretty specific orders about entering the submarine. I was not to enter the submarine, so we didn't. Um, so what we were able to determine from an exterior uh, uh, survey of the submarine was there was certainly no um, evidence of there being ordnance present uh, on the submarine. But it was uh, an interesting job and certainly one when you're diving on what is effectively a war grave. Um, but it makes you think about uh, how we do our business and what it is we do. So I thought it was quite a moving task and a quite a great, a good task to do. Mm. Thank you. Um, just as a follow-on, um, Kulu was one of two um, tongue-class minesweepers, uh, the other being Snipe, which was converted to a, a mine hunter. What was the role of the clearance divers on these mine hunters? The diver's role in the mine hunting task is really around uh, recovery of mines, recovery of the weapon, in particular the first time you spot one. Um, a principal task in mine countermeasures, in particular mine hunting, is to recover the first mine for analysis so we can get as much intelligence as we possibly can on what it is we're up against. And then we're able to tune, our, in particular, our mine sweeping equipment to be able to target those particular mines. So um, it's about, initially, recovery of the mine. Once we've got the intelligence that we need, further locations we can dispose of them using today, uh, using remotely operated vehicles and placing charges against them. But we still carry divers because an important part of the diver's role in any mine hunter is to conduct that recovery task in the initial part of the MCM operation. A very, very important part. Okay, thanks. Um, Heck Donahue, in 1981, the clearance diving branch contributed to the Army's elite Special Air Services Regiment, as you briefly mentioned. Can you just explain the background behind this? Yeah, sure. The main impetus for the establishment of a counter-terrorist capability within the ADF in Australia was the bomb attack near the Hilton Hotel in Sydney in February 78. The Army 
had long been planning to develop a counter-terrorist capability, but uh, the Hilton bombing created the uh, environment where they would receive political support for such. So in May 79, the government approved the establishment of a specialised and dedicated counter-terrorist assault team, and in August that year, Army issued a directive to the Special Air Service Regiment to establish a tactical assault group, or TAG it was called. One year later, the government considered advice about the vulnerability of offshore oil installations in Bass Strait and agreed that the threat of terrorist attack was real and potentially highly dangerous. So it authorised the ADF to establish a special group to recover the asset if an attack occurred. Consequently, a second tag was established, which became operational in November 1980. The two teams were part of one SAS squadron, which had responsibility within the regiment for the counter-terrorist capability. Now, CT capability was a mixed blessing for the regiment. On the one hand, it provided realistic training and an actual operational role. On the other, it had a highly disruptive effect and the war role training suffered due to the manpower drain of maintaining two operational groups and training their reliefs. The long-term solution would be to re-raise two squadron with the inherent difficulty of finding sufficient manpower capable of qualifying. The initial solution was to seek assistance from the RAN and to rationalise manpower in the regiment. So in mid-1980, Army requested the RAN to allocate clearance divers to the second TAG which was being formed. The first CDs to join the TAG complete, comprised five personnel who arrived in WA in June 1980. They completed the SAS selection course before being accepted into the squadron, as did subsequent groups. The number of CDs attached to SAS regiment at the time was at times over 25 and included a PO writer administration and a leading seaman driver support class, but gradually reduced over time as the regiment increased its numbers and its personnel were able to man the second tag. By the late 1980s, after a third SAS squadron had been re-raised and manned, the CT role rotated annually between the three squadrons. Following a, a SAS regiment review of the CT requirement in 1995, and with, the, and with the regiment now consisting of three squadrons, it was decided that RAN sport was no longer required and the CD commitment ceased. Overall, some 100 members of the branch qualified in counter-terrorism, and at any one time, more than a quarter of the branch was involved. Now, further that, following the terrorist attacks in New York and Washington on 11 September 2001, the government directed that the ADF needed to be able to respond to two simultaneous and geographically separate terrorist attacks. As a, as a result, in January 2002, four RAR began to develop a CT capability and by July was able to bring online a new tag known as TAG East, which included an RAN clearance diving component. So by this time, the SAS regiment had reverted to normal organisation and had only one tag, known as TAG West. In 2009, 4RAR changed their name to 2nd Commando Regiment. So TAG East complements and mirrors TAG West, and the RN contribution to TAG East consists of an operations officer, a CD assault platoon, one team of CD snipers, and an underwater medic. Okay, thanks, Hick. Uh, now, 
Pete Tedman, you spent time with the um, SAS regiment. Um, uh, what was your experiences? Uh, Peter, I, I guess no one will, will uh, be too surprised when I say it was pretty challenging. Um, the first CDs, as, as Hex said, headed west to the regiment when I was on my advanced CD course. Uh, and, and looking back from my point of view, they, they really were our brightest and our best. And, and uh, they went through a pretty painful uh, pre-selection phase before actually getting to the west. So you can only imagine how shocked we were uh, when most weren't selected. We said about, uh, I think there was about 20, and, and as, as, uh, as Heck said, only five were selected. Um, I, it, and I've got to say, it was pretty tough after that to, uh, to find willing volunteers. Um, having come, ju just come off my advanced course, um, I, I was one of those that, that was volunteered, uh, and I, I went to join the regiment in uh, late 1982. Um, well, I think what we'd learnt from that, from that first foray into the CT world was that uh, while we had many of the skills, and we certainly had the diving skills in, 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 in spades, but uh, what we didn't have was many of the military skills. So uh, prior to, uh, to the group I was with going to the West, uh, we spent about six weeks up at the infantry centre, you know, learning, learning the infantry way of, of, uh, of weapon handling. Um, we did a bit less, although we still did a fair bit running up hills and swimming miles. Um, we, we really did focus on the military skills. And as a result, about half of our group uh, got through. So we were the, the first uh, kind of large footprint uh, in, in the regiment. Uh, of course, we were considered outsiders. Uh, we hadn't followed the usual army way into the regiment. So it took a while to break, break into the group. Um, there was also a degree of suspicion that, that at some stage, uh, the ADF would, would follow the lead of the SAS and Royal Marine SBS and split the water operations and land operation capability. Uh, in, in, in the UK, the, at the time, uh, the British SAS had responsibility for land counterterrorism and the Royal Marine SBS had responsibility for water counterterrorism. And, uh, and they didn't sit under the one command, so it was, it was a pretty hectic period. Um, but once we did, once we, we, we kind of we proved we had the skills that they were looking for, it, it was a remarkable experience. Uh, in the early days of counterterrorism, um, everything was pretty new. So there was a lot of innovation. Uh, we made some of it up as, as we went along, um, to, to the point that... Uh, in 1985, uh, I went went to SBS on a on a short exchange uh, to work with them for underway ship recovery ops, just so that we had we had uh, the basics, and uh, we had really progressed well well beyond our uh, our English cousins, certainly in terms of uh, some of our land based operations. Um, for the water troop that I was part of. Um, the routine varied from, uh, from training in support of our land troops. So when, when the land troop were doing a land-based counter-terrorism operation, uh, we were the backup. We were the immediate response if something went wrong uh, with the land. 
as when we were doing a water operation, whether that be ship or an oil platform, the land operators were our immediate response should something go wrong with our deliberate approach. Um, so we went from one day uh, working with the land troop, um, assaulting a building, uh, to the next day a plane, and then about every six weeks we'd, uh, we'd pack up our goods and chattels and head to Bass Strait to practice our assault skills on an oil platform. So I've got to say it was never dull. Thanks, Peter. Um... So, Russ Crane, a major event for clearance divers was their involvement in the 1991 Gulf War. Can you explain what their involvement was? Yeah, sure. Um, it was certainly a significant, <clears throat> a significant um, activity for the clearance diving uh, teams and community. Um, but we really began our involvement in the Gulf not, not only in Kuwait, not simply in Kuwait, uh, but in the tanker war in 1987. Now, you'd recall the, the Iran-Iraq War 1980 through to 1988. Uh, the anti-shipping campaign between Iraq and Iran was known as the Tanker War. Initially, it was based on shipping attacks uh, by Iraq on Iranian ships, and uh, Iran responded by attacking ships belonging to Iraq and her trading partners. Initially, they were using anti-ship missiles and small boat attacks, but in 1987, um, Iran began to mine shipping lanes uh, in the Gulf. Several ships were damaged, including uh, the US uh, FFG, USS Samuel B. Roberts, in April of 1988. So in December of 87, um, Australia decided to commit a team of clearance divers uh, from then CDT-4 to assist in the mine clearance uh, operations, codenamed Operation Sandglass. Now, a number of officers were uh, committed to the headquarters, which had been established in one of the Royal Navy RFAs in uh, Jabal Ali. And members of CDT-4 were sent uh, to the UK for some additional training on ordnance that we expected would be encountered um, in this mine countermeasures uh, mission in, in the Gulf. As it turned out, um, the war finished uh, before those uh, team members in the UK could actually be deployed. So um, they didn't deploy, but we had a range of people in the headquarters environment for a number of years. Some four years later, in the months following the invasion of Kuwait, um, the Iraqis laid around a 1,000 mines across the top end of the Gulf. And, and they also released about 150 floating mines uh, in broadly the same area, that top end of, of, the, of the Gulf. Um, following a request from the US, the Australian government in January 91 uh, approved the formation of CDT-3 based on members of clearance diving teams 1, 2 and 4 at, at the time. Now this was the first time we'd reformed CDT-3 since the activities in uh, Vietnam. Initial tasking <coughs> for the team was to be mine countermeasures, including recovery of mines for intelligence purposes, um, EOD, including disposal of chemical weapons and IEDs, um, salvage and limited battle damage repair, uh, covert beach reconnaissance prior to amphibious landings, and attacks against ships and shore installations. So a very broad 
tasking uh, environment for ZDT3. The 23-man team deployed from Australia on the 27th of January in 1991, arriving in Bahrain about four days later. In the preparation phase for Op Desert Storm, the role of the CDT uh, was to support the planned amphibious landings. So this would involve covert, uh, very shallow water mine countermeasures work and reconnaissance out to around the 10 metre depth contour around those target beaches that had been identified for amphibious landings. Now, our clearance divers at that time had been trained for this type of task for many years. Uh, and there was international recognition that they had the skills to complete this particular type of tasking. And the team began their preparations for that. As it turned out, in mid February, uh, USS Princeton activated an Italian Manta influenced ground mine, and later USS Tripoli uh, struck a moored mine believed to be an Iraqi LUGM 145 near the planned landing area. The amphibious assault plan was then deemed to be no longer viable, and the team's tasking uh, was therefore amended and changed. As a result of the if you like, the abandoning of the amphibious uh, plan. The team was then allocated to something called Operation Desert Cactus, the recovery of Kuwaiti ports uh, post-liberation. Now, that included working at times with the Royal Navy, the USN and the French Navy uh, diving and EOD units. CDT-3 eventually arrived in Kuwait on the 5th of March in 1991. Uh, and their activities centred around three main areas. Uh, firstly, uh, the port, and I'll probably get the pronunciation of this port incorrect. Um, the first port was Ashuraiba. It's about 40 kilometres south of Kuwait City. Um, their tasking here was to open the port uh, alongside RN and US, USN uh, teams, both diving and EOD teams. There were a lot of ships waiting offshore, waiting for entrance to uh, Kuwait through the port, so the pressure was on. Um, it took them about seven days to clear that particular port, and principally um, what they had to deal with was uh, quite significant. They were dealing with uh, EOD uh, ordnance issues, they were dealing with IEDs, they were dealing with booby traps, and interestingly, dealing with uh, mines that had been washed up on the beaches. In this particular area, the, the port itself was relatively clear, but a lot of mines had washed up on the beaches both north and south of, of the port area. So the team spent a great deal of time making sure that those, those booby traps, those pieces of ordnance were recovered, and those mines were made safe prior to uh, permitting uh, ships to enter the port. It took them, as I said, seven days to clear that port and open that port to uh, activity. The team then moved on to uh, a second area, the Kuwaiti naval, naval Base. Now, in this particular area, they were operating solely as an RAN um, unit. They, were, they weren't working alongside their coalition partners. Um, and again, once again, the, the rapid um, movement of invading forces out of the area had left behind a whole a range of ordnance, bomblets, booby traps, um, 
um, ordnance that had not been necessarily um, exploded and needed to be dealt with. Um, and again, a number of mines that occurred out, that were found outside the port itself. So another significant activity that needed to be cleared. That took five days for the team to uh, complete that particular task. The third area was then, in fact, there were more areas in the, in the, the port city, uh, the port of Kuwait city. Um, and the team worked in a couple of different ports uh, up there, basically doing similar things making sure that there was no uh, threat to shipping that would eventually use the port and, and making sure that once the port area was open, there were no booby traps or unexploded ordnance on ground uh, that people would um, encounter. So after a very busy period, and, and I'd have to say, uh, from my view, a very professional performance by members of the team, uh, they uh, completed the operation on the 22nd of April. Um, the overall tally for what they did, uh, 231 hours of diving, just over 2 million square metres of seabed was cleared by CDT-3 uh, in that particular operation, and 60 mines were rendered safe. <coughs> so on return, uh, the CDT-3 was disbanded on the 11th of May, and then members returned to the apparent uh, CDTs where the, from which they'd come prior to the operation. So um, overall, a, a very varied task for CDT3 and one which they performed, in my view, extremely well. Thanks, Russ. So um, Peter Tedman, following the Gulf War, there were years of United Nations inspections on Iraq's weapons of mass destruction and that overall program. Um, this involved clearance divers such as yourself being part of the UN Special Commission. Can you explain what, what that involved? Yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, the clearance divers uh, who, de who deployed um, were part of the United Nations Special Commission on Iraq. So that, it was called UNSCOM. In the early phase after the invasion of Kuwait, their role centred around uh, the inspection of Iraqi pro uh, weapons production sites uh, particularly those sites that it was suspected had been used to produce chemical and biological agents. Uh, they spent most, most of their life on site in, uh, in chemical biological suits with gas masks. So it was, it was, a, it was a pretty tough one. Uh, once the site had been confirmed as part of the program, it was cleared, sealed, and then uh, there was ongoing electronic monitoring um, by the UN station. Um, I remember pretty clearly uh, my team briefing in Bahrain as, as, we, were, as we were going into Iraq. Uh, the thing that struck me um, was the scale of the program with thousands of litres of botulinum and anthrax being produced. Some was weaponised and then it was pretty much just dumped into the desert. So... Uh, so yeah, it was it was it was just a scale. It was quite quite unimaginable. Uh, my team's role was the destruction of the Al Hakam site. Um, the Iraqis had maintained that the Al Hakam site um, was an animal feed production site. So um, when we arrived, we found a site that was spread spread over about 20 square kilometres uh, with around 50 buildings. The buildings ranged from something the size of a small cottage to 
uh, your local Bunnings warehouse. Uh, most of the buildings were heavily fortified and many were protected by gun and missile batteries. So I guess they, they really valued their animal feed. Um, our job was to blow it all up or as we were, brief, were briefed, to return the site to the desert. Uh, I remember we had a bit of a hiccup at the start. Uh, the first couple of days were to allow us to, uh, to do a reconnaissance and, and, and bring in um, the primary explosives that we're going to use to, to destroy the site. And, and, and of course, you've got to remember that this site had been cleared and locked down for quite a while. So we got a bit of, a bit of a surprise when we found three large milk churns of anthrax in the basement of one of the labs. Um, we weren't in protective gear, so we were just lucky that the containers had a layer, like a jelly-like layer between the anthrax and us um, when one of our Iraqi guides decided to, to take the lid off. Um, fortunately, the scientists came back in um, and, and about three or four days later, they assured, it, assured us uh, that this time the site was clear. Uh, the destruction of the site took around six weeks with the largest detonation, which took out half a building, uh, being 950 kilos of explosives. So, great job. So, and just staying with you, Pete, um, the next major activity was East Timor. Um, so, uh, and once again, you participated in this operation. So, what was involved uh, for the divers in East Timor? Uh, at the time, I was the uh, when, when when East Timor sort of kicked off. I was the CEO of Clearance Diving Team Four. Um, I, re I received one of those calls from Fleet Operations. It was it was pretty vague. It asked me how many divers were needed to do a range of tasks. Uh, nothing too specific. Uh, about a, a week after that, we we were given our deployment order to. Uh, deploy in support of operations in East Timor. Our, our initial directed task was the clearance of the port of Dili for HMAS Jarvis Bay, uh, the fast catamaran. Uh, so we packed our gear and, and, and headed off to Darwin. Um, we, we were on board uh, Jarvis Bay and, and over about a week, uh, we, had, we had two runs uh, close to Dili uh, but we never quite made it. Uh, each time we were turned back uh, by, the, by the Indonesian Navy. Uh, after that second failed attempt, um, a decision was made to fly an SAS troop into Dili to secure the shore side of the landing. Um, the SAS team uh, thought there might be booby traps on the wharf, uh, so they took uh, myself and one of my sailors with them uh, to do a search and, if necessary, uh, do the clearance of, of anything we found. Um, fortunately, there was a there was a lot of discarded ordnance, but nothing uh, specifically aim, aimed at us. Um, once we were established in Delhi, our main role became uh, clearing the beach approaches and ports for the delivery of some of the of some of the UN aid to the more uh, remote communities in East Timor. So, unlike our uh, our other ADF brethren. Who were, who were pretty much stuck in Dili, uh, we got to cover, cover much of the country. The job we probably didn't expect uh, was the conduct of a clandestine beach reconnaissance in the Akuzi Enclave. The Enclave was in West Timor and was held at the time by the militia. And the reason for the clearance was so that we could land 
a couple of vehicle-mounted SAS patrols in the on, into the enclave uh, via a landing craft um, to reinforce the patrols they already had on the ground. So they took in they took in additional ammunition, additional heavy equipment for them. Um, we we only had a small team, and 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 as as my other two diving comrades will tell you, uh, it, it is a, it is a pretty big task. Um, so everyone ended up in the water, with the exception of one of our injured teammates who drove the boat. Captain Crane was the CEO of HMAS Success at the time and delivered us to the enclave and, more importantly, recovered us once the reconnaissance was complete. So thank you very much. Thanks very much, uh, Peter. Um, Heck Donahue, the divers returned to the Gulf um, for what was to become the 2003 Iraq War. Can you outline what their contribution was? Yes. Once again, Team 3 formed in January 2003 for another deployment to the Middle East as part of Australia's contribution to the Iraq War. The team turned out to be the largest ever deployed, which at the height of its operations consisted of 32 men, including six support staff. And I'll go in a bit into the sort of support a team like this needed. So after a period of training with coalition divers in the United States, the main body left Sydney by RAF C-130 on the 22nd of February. They staged through Bahrain, arriving there the next day to be met by an advance party who had pre-deployed. They then linked up with 40 tonnes of equipment and saws that had been shipped to the theatre in HMAS Canimbla, as well as 20 tonnes that they'd carried with them on board the C-130. So over a course of about six days, the team broke this stuff down into suitable packages and what could be taken with them and what could be put on the USS Gunston Hall, which was a landing ship which was allocated to support the coalition diving teams, which consists of US and uh, Royal Navy diving teams. And drawing from their experience in 1991, the team brought four Land Rovers, two trailers and three inflatable boats, which gave them self-sufficiency and was to prove very valuable later on. They also had weapons, ammunition and aware of uh, they could be well uh, left on their own, they had six weeks worth of ration packs to keep them uh, going. A few weeks later they flew from Bahrain to a naval base in Kuwait and on the 19th of March 2003 when the war began, they moved forward overland to a former US Marine camp in the desert near the Iraq border. Here they were in the path of Iraqi missiles being fired south and said it was feared they might be carrying chemical weapons they repeatedly had to get in and out of anti-chemical clothing. The first group of divers in action, in fact, was a detachment on board the RAN ships operating in the northern Persian Gulf. And on the 20th of March, when boarding parties based in Kanimbla discovered some Iraqi tugs and a large, barrier, a large barge carrying sea mines, the Australian divers worked with their US counterpart, counterparts to check the mines for booby traps and certify that they were safe to transport to Kuwait for further examination. Four days later, the main party crossed into Iraq and travelled by road to Iraq's only deep water port, Umm Qasar near the junction of Qua Abd Alay and the Al-Basra Al Canal linking Iraq with the Persian Gulf. 
With fighting still flaring in the town of Umkazar, it was essential to make the port operational as quickly as possible to allow the coalition to bring humanitarian aid into southern Iraq. The, while well, 3 drove there by land, the US and the British divers disembarked by helicopter from Gunston Hall. After settling into their quarters in a run-down warehouse, next morning the divers ventured into the coffee-coloured waters of the harbour. It was tough and dangerous work. Powerful tidal flows meant that the work could be done in limited windows of opportunity as the tide turned. The need to ensure <coughs> adequate separation between divers working with potentially explosive ordnance meant that only a small number could be underwater at one time. Visibility was so poor that divers had to work by touch alone. A particular problem they came across was a sunken Iraqi PB-40 mine layer with four of the LUGM-145 moored sea mines that Russ mentioned earlier. They could not be detonated in situ as that would damage the pier at which it was hoped the first humanitarian aid ship would be able to dock in a few days. So over the course of several days, fighting against extreme tides and subsurface conditions of zero visibility, a number of divers proved their endurance and courage as they wrestled the mines into position for lifting and transportation to a safe detonation site. During this operation, a leading seaman, Jason Dunn, was on the stem of the vessel attaching a lifting bag to a mine when it slipped off its cradle and pinned into the hull of the mine layer. He called out for help and fortunately was heard by leading seaman Troy Miles, who was in the water at the time. As Miles later said, I realised Jason was in trouble but couldn't see anything because of the silt and had to feel what was happening. I used my bare hands and my strength to push the mine off him and secure it. Dunn was not injured with the incident and both of them continued with their task and the mines were recovered and a series of spectacular explosions mark their disposal. In other cases where suspicious objects were, locate, were located in the harbour by the US Navy unmanned vehicles and the dolphins from a US Marine mammal team, they were detonated in situ in the interests of expediency and safety. While the harbour was being cleared, some of the divers helped check the port buildings for ordnance and booby traps and others worked with British commandos to clear the town of dangerous items. In the grounds of a school, they found a cache of mortars and two rocket-propelled grenades. These were too dangerous to remove and were destroyed where they lay after moving the watching crowd back to a safe distance. Outside the town, the divers also helped dispose of 25 sea mines found hidden in the desert. And on one occasion, they had to drive a mob of sheep away before they could blow the mines up. So finally, on the 9th of April, after almost two works, weeks of concerted effort, the port was declared clear and open for business. The Aussie divers then moved about 20 kilometres north to Kwa-Az-Zubar, or the Kaz as it was known, located on the waterway of the same name and serving the port of the town of Az-Zubar. The task, in conjunction with US and British divers, was similar to Umm Khazar, but complicated by a very large number of abandoned and derelict vessels. Once again, the tidal flows made diving hard work and the oily water of the port kept visibility low. While some of the divers worked in the CAS, 
Each day another detachment drove north from the British camp to Basra, then south to the southern coast of the Al Four Peninsula, where the tidal flats met the Quar Abd Allah. Along this entire coastline, they cleared unexploded ordnance in the area between the main road and the low water mark, walking or sometimes crawling very carefully through areas known to be littered with mines. They disposed of hundreds of explosive devices, thereby making the area much safer for the locals. The team also worked at the Kwar Az Zubar heliport and found a large facility which housed the Iraq Navy's mine warfare school. Here they found huge underground bunkers and outdoor storage areas crammed with sea mines, anti-submarine mortars and other ordnance. Destroying all these items and keep, keeping locals scavenging on the site away from the explosions proved a, a large job. CDT-3 finally completed operations on the 8th of May and after loadout departed, by Iraq, departed Iraq by road on the 12th. While mobility assets were in short supply and the US and British coalition diving teams had no transport, CDD-3, by bringing their own vehicles, was re relatively unhindered in this regard and hence able to deploy as required. A less publicised but very important achievement of the team was their contribution to intelligence gathering. After entering Iraq, CDT-3 identified, rendered safe and recovered an assortment of enemy equipment that was prized and highly sought after by the Australian intelligence organisation. Electronic devices, communications equipment and hard to acquire threat weaponry, including numbers of missiles and their components were obtained by the team and passed into the hands of intelligence specialists. MCM diving resulted in a total searched area underwater of about two and a half million square metres. And in the um, total, 34 explosive ordnance disposal tasks were completed with 2,100 kilometres travelled during the mission. The team's detachments eventually cleared unexploded ordnance from 135 square kilometres of Iraqi territory. Over 4,000 items of ordnance were located and destroyed, in addition to hundreds of thousands of small arms ammunition. At the end of May, the members of OzCD3 returned to Australia. Without sustaining casualties, this small group had made a significant contribution to coalition operations in Iraq and once again showed that a small number of people can do with the right training, experience, equipment and attitude. Following the four-month deployment, Team 3 disbanded and team members returned to their parent units. Thanks, Heck. Um, I just want to finish off with a, uh, a final operation, which is the little-known involvement of clearance divers in the long-running Afghanistan campaign. Russ Crane, can you just briefly explain their contribution? Yeah, sure, Peter. Um, interestingly, the, the genesis of the mission in Afghanistan actually started well before. Again, <laughs> it started in Iraq. Um, Faced with, uh, I guess, the developing IED, the Improvised Explosive Device Threat in Iraq, the US Army established a, a task force in October of 2003 uh, to apply a coordinated approach to the IED threat issue. Uh, the Joint Intelligence Task Force Combating Terrorism Weapons Branch of the US Defense Intelligence Agency is credited with starting the entire counter IED effort in Iraq. 
Now, interestingly, they drew heavily on British advice uh, based on their experiences in combating uh, a sustained IED campaign, of course, in Northern Ireland. Now, that grew into uh, a coalition joint task force, Troy, which was established in 2005 as the first operational counter IED task force in US military history. The Coalition Joint Task Force Troy exercised command and control over specialised counter IED forces in Iraq and coordinated efforts focused on IED intelligence collection and development, material solutions to address the threats and training throughout the region in order to neutralise the IED threat. The task force also included specialised units for EOD, weapons intelligence, explosives exploitation and training, and weapons intelligence and collection aimed at defeating IED networks rather than simply only the ordnance, it's also defeating the networks. The intelligence group within the Joint Task Force consisted of a number of cells, including an intelligence fusion cell, a combined explosives exploitation cell, a foreign ordnance exploitation cell, and an EW coordination cell, as well as some special programs. Now, it's through this prism of IED focus and activity that RANCDs first became involved uh, initially in the combined explosives exploitation cell in Camp Victory near Baghdad, and later in Afghanistan within the Combined Explosives Exploitation Centre, which had been renamed for the Afghanistan campaign as the Weapons Intelligence Team. Now, in December of 2005, uh, the first RAN MCDO, or Mine Warfare and Clearance Diving Officer, to take control as OIC of the Counter IED uh, Training Team, Iraq, under the command of CJTF, or command Coalition Joint Task Force Troy. Uh, that particular individual paved the way for many who would follow from the Royal Australian Navy. In February of 2006, CDF directed, our CDF directed the formation of a similar Australian Joint Task Force to coordinate and respond to the IED threat. Now, this joint task force also worked closely with coalition partners in Iraq and Afghanistan. Also in 2006, uh, the International Security Force in Afghanistan, based on the experience gained with CJTF Troy in Iraq, formed a combined joint task force known as CJTF Paladin, headquartered at Bagram uh, Air Base. Its role was conducting the IED threat or countering the IED threat, and undertaking EOD activities and coordinating the collection of intelligence and IED threat training. From 2007, uh, clearance divers in increasing numbers were also deployed to Afghanistan in counter IED roles. Now initially, MCDOs were attached to headquarters ISAF, Joint Command in Kabul, with theatre responsibility for countering the IED threat. From 2008, clearance diving personnel were attached to weapons intelligence teams with regional command responsibilities. 
Now also in 2008, uh, clearance diving personnel were deployed with the Australian Reconstruction Mentoring and Advisory Task Forces, providing counter IED mobility and survivability support to combat teams within the Aruzgan province. So this is the first time that we're now seeing uh, RA and clearance divers deployed with combat teams in Afghanistan uh, in the role of combating IED threats. Their role was to locate and when found, deal with IEDs out on uh, combat patrols. Um, it took some additional training for our people that were deploying um, in that particular role. Uh, and a lot of that training was done uh, here in Australia, particularly in Woomera, where um, a lot of the environment you know, can be seen to be similar to that which they would experience um, in Afghanistan. So overall, uh, some 50 clearance divers served in Afghanistan up to around 2014-15. Uh, in counter IED exploitation positions uh, and many as tactical EOD technicians uh, with the combat teams. Uh, typically, a tour with the uh, task force in an EOD uh, team supporting combat teams would deal with some 50 to 60 improvised explosive devices of many types uh, and using many and varied actuation methods um, in their particular tour. So once again, I think the, the value and, and worth of the clearance diver um, in his counter IED role was well demonstrated and valued. Okay, uh, thanks Russ. So um, to conclude, I'd like to ask each of you your thoughts on the, uh, the activities of the clearance diving teams on the period since Vietnam. And if I can just start with you Russ, and in particular from your perspective, as a Chief of Navy from 2008 to 2011. Uh, what's your final thoughts? Well, I, I think from the early 90s and frankly for a few years before that, around the mid 80s, the CD capability, I, I think, was transitioning very quickly. Uh, Vietnam had put the capability inherent in our clearance divers uh, front of mind, but we needed to grow and, and, and mature that inherent capability that existed within the CD branch, such that it was more broadly trained, suited, and available for tasking in national or coalition joint operations. Um, so this put us on a growth path of, in many ways, self-reflection, examination, and determination to expand our capabilities in line with uh, realistic and anticipated future tasking, and fill a requirement that had been identified particularly around very shallow water mine countermeasures and port operations, including EOD and IED operations. Now that led to greater emphasis in training and doctrine uh, around broad underwater searches, primarily in the literal, and obviously the EOD practices that come with that. The retirement of our older uh, ton class mine hunters and the arrival of the Hewan class mine hunters also raised the bar in terms of our ability to integrate with other fleet assets, both nationally and internationally, uh, and this aided the work of the CDTs as well. So we had um, a real emphasis on making sure that the capability and the tasking of our both our mine hunters afloat and our CDTs ashore and in the literal could integrate properly and appropriately with both uh, our own and in 
international assets. Okay, thanks, Russ. Uh, hey, what do, what do you <coughs> I can only agree with what Russ has said. Vietnam was certainly a turning point where the RN moved forever from being a fairly small introspective group, the RN divers I'm talking about, and developed their own capabilities and set the scene for the much larger activities later on. Though small, their impact in the Gulf and Iraq wars was significant, as was the contribution in East Timor. And as we've just heard, they worked alongside Army and Air Force AOD specialists in support of counter IED activities in the Middle East and most notably Afghanistan. So over the years, the clearance diver has evolved into a multi-environmental and highly skilled operator capable of contributing to a range of activities in demanding and dangerous environments and whose training ensures fortitude and a consistent performance. The capability provides a strategic option to government in considering Australia's contributions to coalition partners. And I think with the foresight intervention of key players along the road, the diving world has moved from the wings to front and centre stage. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Heck. Uh, Peter Tedman, what's your final thoughts? <laughs> uh, Peter, how could I disagree with the Commodore and the Vice Admiral? <laughs> um, but, but from my point of view, having watched the branch's ongoing integration into current fleet operations, particularly our important role in amphibious operations, coupled with some of the amazing leap forward that we've had in our equipment, I think um, in terms of our fu the future of the CD branch, it's as bright as it's ever been. So I, I think we're, we're, we're bound for glory. Okay, thanks very much, uh, Peter. Um, sadly, that's all we have time for. My thanks to Russ Crane, Heck Donoghue and Peter Tedman. Thank you for joining us. And for more information on the Australian Naval History podcast series, simply search for the Naval Studies Group on your search engine. Goodbye for now.